All right, well, we're in the book of 2 Samuel. This is a section where, where David sorrows over Saul's death. This is the only book in the Bible that starts with a lie. It starts with someone telling a lie. And you're going to find out as we go through this book, it's like one dramatic moment after another. You move from victory to defeat, back to victory, from civil war to national war, back to civil war. You read about domestic issues, domestic dramas going on. You read about national crises going on, miraculous interventions we're going to see. And we're also going to see faithful suffering. You see the Israeli politics. They squirrel off against one another throughout this book on numerous occasions. But it all is not a fairy tale. It's, it's real life. It's something that really happened. We're going to meet heroes. We're going to meet villains. And more than not, we're going to meet people kind of in between those two <laughs> that you might not be able to pin down whether they're good or bad. You see good, bad, ugly, beautiful, selfless, self-serving people. You see all kinds of folks in this book. But through it all, you see the sovereign hand of God working, and he is really the true hero of this story. Toward the end of the book, in 2 Samuel 22, David sings a song near the end of his life. Remember, he's a musician. He used to be Saul's harpist and calmed his nerves and at the beginning in the middle and at the end there is an affirmation and the affirmation is simply this that the lord is my rock that's what david affirms over and over and over again for david is god's anointed king remember that the, the word anointed basically means in hebrew messiah so in the greek it's christ with a little c not a big c but a little c and in, in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 3 and 4, if you just turn over there, all the way toward the end of the book, it says, When one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of the morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. That was at the end of David's life. Now, remember, last week we ended 1 Samuel ended with Saul facing defeat in battle, eventually committing suicide, falling on his sword. He didn't want to get caught by the enemy. And so 2 Samuel, verses, chapters 1 through 5, tell of this transition that's happening from the end of Saul's reign, okay, into the reign of King David and his enthronement eventually over all of Israel. At first, he's just recognized, David is just recognized as king over Judah. And then, by chapter 5, he's recognized as Israel's king entirety. Remember, there's all the different tribes. So, it's, it's kind of a, a mess. There's, there's not a neat little transfer of power like we have in our country when the one president gives up power and the next one takes over. In some places, it's not even clear who the good guys are to be honest with you, as you read through the book. It's a story of David and his commander, Joab, and Ish-bosheth, who is Saul's son. Now remember, multiple sons of Saul were killed in battle along with Saul, but one apparently wasn't fighting because he wasn't killed. And so Saul's son kind of took over, and his army and his commander is named Abner. So you have 
this guy named Ish-bosheth, who is Saul's son, he tries to take over reign as king, and his commander is Abner, and then you have David, and his commander is Joab. So who are the good guys? Well, we're going to see as we do this. Now remember, First and Second Samuel, there's a slide up there if you can see it, I don't know, but First and Second Samuel originally was one book, right? Remember, it was just one book. There was no first and second. They're, they're, they're written by the same person. And the only reason that they're divided into two is because they couldn't fit them on one scroll. That's the only reason. So there's no break here. So when we read at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 13, and they took their bones and they buried them under a tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days, 2 Samuel picks up. After the death of Saul, it picks right up. There's no break there. And that's very important to understand. These events take place about a thousand years before Christ. A thousand years before Christ. And if you had to figure out what's going on here, it's a transition. It's a transition. Samuel, the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, is a transition from God being the king of Israel, a theocracy where God rules and reigns, to a monarchy. Remember, they wanted a king. And they whined and they whined, so finally God gave them what they wanted, and he raised up Saul. And the reason the book is called Samuel is because Samuel is really the one who makes this happen. He is the one that God uses early on in the book as a, you might call an agent of change. He's the one that God spoke to. He's the one that said, hey, go get Saul. And he even, remember, he even questioned that choice. Kind of going, I don't know if this is the right choice. But he obeyed the Lord, and he served God faithfully. He was a priest. And as a priest, he was representative of God and his voice to the people. So Samuel is the agent of change, and that's why this book is named Samuel, not David, per se. He's not the most important person in this book, in First and Second Samuel, but he is the first important person. Without him, none of this would happen. All right, And so it's an important thing. He's that agent of change that God used to make that transition from a theocracy to a monarchy. Now, if you had to outline the book, you can see here, I put it on the bottom there. First, first Samuel, verses, chapters 1 through 12, remember, it was all about Samuel. Talked about how he was a priest and all this stuff. And then there's a little couple chapters in between there, 13, 14, and 15. That's the segment that is mainly about Saul. And then from 1 Samuel 16 all the way to the end of 2 Samuel, it's all about David. That's all we're going to talk about, about David. And so if you had to outline the book, that's what it would be. Now it's interesting because if you want a linear, a linear history of Israel, if you just want to know what happens in history with the nation of Israel, you can read 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. If you read those four books in our Bibles, you will understand the entire history of Israel because it's all in there. And you say, well, where does First Chronicles fit in? First and Second Chronicles basically retells the story that's found in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. So First Chronicles retells Second Samuel. Second Chronicles retells First and Second Kings. That makes sense. So if you want to know about the history of Israel, just read. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and if you want an overview of the whole thing, read First and Second Chronicles. Now, 
a good way to summarize these books, and we talked about this several weeks ago when we started 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel talks about the rise of King David. It talks about bringing the, the, the priestly line and all the stuff that happened for King David to become king. 2 Samuel doesn't focus on the rise of King David. It focuses on what? The reign of King David. Because when we start 2 Samuel, you'll see that even though God has already anointed David as king back in 1 Samuel, he hasn't really taken the throne yet. Remember, Saul is out there trying to hunt him down all this time. He's ticked off because he's thinking somehow David is trying to take over the throne. And David wasn't. David was just being obedient. Even though he knew that eventually he would receive the throne, he was respecting the office that God had established before him. He just didn't preemptively say, hey, I'm the king, get out of here, Saul. No, he respected it because God still had Saul in that place at this time. Now, he's going to be recognized publicly as king over Judah in chapter 2. Next week, we'll see that. And he's going to be recognized publicly as king over all of Israel from chapter 5 of 2 Samuel forward. And so as we finish, it's almost like this game of thrones in 1 Samuel. It's, you know, these two anointed men going back and forth, fighting back and forth. And Saul, more so, fighting, trying to off David, trying to kill him. Saul was the anointed king. David was the anointed king. Saul was the first human king of Israel and is recognized as king. And David is kind of waiting for his throne, for the throne to be vacated so he could take over. So, as I said, we want to talk about the respect of the office. I mean, he is going to take over. He knows he's going to take over. The Lord knows he's going to take over. And even there's a growing population of people under David's reign and even in other countries that know that David's going to take over. So this is a widely known thing. It's not like a big mystery. And as you open up 2 Samuel, where are we at? We're right in the middle of this story. We're not at the beginning because, remember, it's one book. They just divided it because it couldn't fit in one scroll. So just pretend we're just continuing on in the book of Samuel, even though we're talking about 2 Samuel. Now, what's interesting is the last two chapters of 1 Samuel, we remember, kind of contrasted David and Saul. We, we saw a, a drastic contrast. Uh, we saw David's failures and, and, or, or David's successes and Saul's failures. We saw the end of Saul, he died, and we saw the beginning of David's reign. Uh, we see that David is winning battle, battles and Saul is losing them. Every battle that David fights, he wins. Especially when the, the, the Philistines are trying to infiltrate the enemies of, of Israel. Okay, um, David is winning cities. He's even winning Philistine cities. Remember, he's in, in the, the city of Ziklag. That's a Philistine city. And he, he, him, him and his army are, are located there. So David's respect among the people is going up. Saul's respect is going down drastically. The last command that Saul gave was disobeyed. Remember, he told his armor, kill me. They didn't listen. All right? There's a lot of people that don't respect the king, King Saul, enough to obey him. And I think he's understanding that at this point. David is, is actively defending Israel. Saul is losing Israel. 
And so you can see the decline of Saul and the rise of David uh, through these, these, these books. You almost see the land, the, the, the Israel's territories, and even Israel's people. It's like they're, they're grains of sand and they're just falling through Saul's and he can't do anything about it at this point in his life. The most important fact, and we can't miss this, is that David is alive and Saul is what? He's dead. Okay, at this point in time. And so, as we, as we look at this, this study tonight, I want you to know that Israel was going through dark times. This was not a cheery time for Israel. And we'll pick that up as we, we read uh, verses 1 through 12. So follow along in your Bibles as we read verses 1 through 12 of Second Samuel. Second Samuel, beginning in verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. Remember, Ziklag is one of those Philistine cities that David now occupies with his army. And he's expanding Israel. He's expanding their territories. He's even taking over Philistine cities. Verse 2. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt upon his head. And when he came to David, he fell down to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. So there's this guy that is just wandering around, and he happens to come upon David. And some people believe that this was a planned event, which I believe. It wasn't just like he was wandering around. They ran into each other. But here he is wandering through the, the, the area here. And if he came from the camp of Saul where Saul was, was fighting, that's Mount Geboa. And that's about 80 miles away from where David is. So it's about three days journey. So this guy had some intent on hooking up with David at this point, coming to David and his men. Now, remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 30, David was fighting the Amalekites, remember? They came in when he was gone, and they burned Ziklag. And they took his wives and the women and the children. Nobody was killed, at least none on their side was killed. And when they came back from battle, they realized, wow, someone came in and raided. They found out it was the Amalekites, and they went out, and they wiped them out. Well, obviously, they didn't wipe them all out. One got away. Now, Saul was fighting the Philistines in chapter 31. And it's just interesting that David was victorious basically cleaning up Saul's mess because, remember, early on, God told Saul to what? To go out and kill all the Amalekites, remember? Well, obviously, it didn't happen. So, verse 4, And David said to him, How did it go? In other words, hey, tell me about the battle. I've been busy fighting back here, man. We wiped out the Amalekites. How did Israel do? Let me know how my, 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 my countrymen have done. How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the foreigner, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. So the first report is, well, it didn't go well. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. And at this point, David's heart must have really been sorrowful. Because, you know, he not only respected the office that Saul held, but I think he also really Love Jonathan. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? In other words, give me some information here. I, 
I mean, I'm not just going to believe you. How do you know that they're dead? He wanted evidence. It would be like if somebody came in and, and said, oh, you know, the governor's dead or the president's dead. You say, wow, what happened? You know, you'd want to you'd want to know you'd want the evidence. Well, that's what David is doing here. And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Geboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. He's about ready to get captured or killed. And when he looked behind, when he looked behind him, he saw me and he called to me. And I answered, here I am. And verse 8, he said to me, who are you? I answered, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Now, you have to stop and you have to think, David and Saul were acquainted. They knew each other rather well, right? David was in his presence a lot. And so he knew what the crown looked like. He knew what the armlet looked like. He was once Saul's armor bearer. So he understood this. And then it says in verse 11, his response, And David took hold of his clothes and he tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. The one thing you'll see with David is the men under his command continue to follow his lead. Just the opposite of Saul. <laughs> they didn't want to follow Saul. I mean, they, they had no respect for Saul. But they, they followed David's lead. And it says in verse 12, And they mourned and went and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. So, the first kind of application here, it's God who sustains us during dark times. It's God who sustains us. I mean, we think we have it bad in our country. Think how Israel felt. They lost their king. Most of the people were dead. I mean, they were, they were being defeated on every side. And so, David's heart was mourning. He was mourning for his king. He was mourning for Jonathan at this point. And there's a lot of lessons in there that you can unpack. I mean, the idea that Saul was actively trying to kill David, and yet David is here mourning the death of this man who killed him, shows you that he obviously had a proper understanding of being maligned and, and being sought after, and yet still being willing to uh, extend some grace and forgiveness to somebody. So Israel is kingless, it's hopeless, it would seem that it has no future, and they're, they're filled with fear at this point in their history. But are they really? Saul is dead, and we have to ask this question, well, how did Saul die? Because back in 1 Samuel, it tells us that he was in battle, and he realized that he was losing the battle, and basically, it gets to a point where he falls on his sword. It says there in verse 3 of 31, The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, so they were shooting arrows at him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not. didn't listen to him. I'm not going to kill the king, right? 
for he great he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his soul sword and and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons. One wasn't there, so he didn't die, and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. And so then you come to this chapter, and some people, oh, this is a contradiction. This guy says, well, no, he wasn't dead, and that, you know, he asked me to kill him, and so I killed him. I I did it as a favor. Uh, The thing you have to understand about this messenger is who he is. How How did Saul die? Well, he, he, he fell on his sword. The, the, the narration tells us that. Now remember, this isn't somebody else writing Second Samuel. It's not a different author. It's the same, same author. And he's basically saying, well, basically this guy shows up and tells a different story. It's not contradicting the fact that what happened to Saul happened, but this guy has good reason to tell a lie, to tell a tale. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this out. Because he is David's enemy. He's an Amalekite. But somehow he's deluded and he thinks, well, you know what? Here is Saul. He's dead. I'm going to take his crown and I'm going to take his armlet and I'm going to go to the guy that's going to be king, David, and I'm going to get in good with him so that I don't end up like the rest of my tribe dead. That's what this guy's doing. So rather than just go and tell the truth, what does he do? He fabricates a lie. And so he tells David, basically, hey, yeah, I was out there, and, and, and this is what happened. And you see that David kind of sees through his ruse. He sees through it, because he asks him, where do you come from? Oh, I escaped from the camp of Israel. Well, how did it go? The people fled, gives him the report. Then David said to the young man, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan are dead? Well, here's what happened. He's probably at this point thinking, oh, yeah, oh, let's see, what do I do? I, I, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Geboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him, so I did an act of mercy, and I killed him because he asked me to. And then it says he took his crown that was on his head and his armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to you, my Lord. So this guy is looking for some form of payment. He's looking for some form of, hey, great, way to go. <laughs> that a boy. That's what he's looking for. But you're going to see here in David's response what happens. He says, so I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the arm that was on his arm and I brought him here to my, my Lord. And then verse 11, then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them. The Amalekite is lying Saul took his own life. That's what the narrator says. Um, And David's response shows the nation that he was not seeking Saul's life. Now remember, he is the one that's going to be the king, right? So it would be kind of like if somehow toward the end of our our current president's uh, time in office, the person that wants to be president knocks off the president, assassinates the president. That's not going to go over well. Okay, you want to avoid that kind of stuff, right? Well, that's what David basically allows to play out here. I don't think he did it purposefully, but his response was a proof 
beyond a shadow of a doubt that he wasn't seeking Saul's life. He wasn't out there hunting after Saul because that's the story that Saul was telling everybody. But David wasn't doing that. He had occasion to kill him several times and he didn't do it. But he is grieved over the death of his king. And remember, he's, in, a, in an odd way, he was his father-in-law as well. So his response was one of love, of grief. And, you know, he really desired to do the right thing through all this. So you say, well, why did this guy die? You know, I put in your outline here just some practical application here. Lying is foolish for a couple reasons. Our lies will be exposed by God. Always. Always. Now, I don't think this guy was punished for what he did. I don't think he was punished because he killed the king. I, don't think, he I think he was punished because he fabricated this story. And, you know, what the important thing to understand is, is that God puts a very high value on truth. And when you, you don't reveal the truth, you fabricate the truth, our lies are really denying God's providence. You're, you're pretending to be God. You're, you're not being truthful. You're not tr being honest. In, in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, it says, On that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. In other words, all this stuff is not a secret to God. He knows exactly what's going on. But it's, So there, there's a lesson here for us to realize that, you know what? Truth has value in God's eyes. And, you know, uh, here is, is David left with this response. And you look at, at, at what happens to him. It says, and David said to the young man, where do you come from? He answered, I'm the son of a soldier and an Amalekite. And David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? In other words, this is, this is the king of Israel you just killed. And you're just flippantly telling me that you did it because he asked you to? See, there's no respect here. And this is where the guy's story, I think, starts to, to break down. Remember, back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul was ordered to execute all these Amalekites. But he didn't do it. And so now here is Samuel, or here is David, cleaning up, once again, Saul's mess. The next time you see the Amalekites, after 1 Samuel 15, they're, they're running a raid on Ziklag while nobody's there to defend the poor women and helpless children. And, and they burned the place down and took everybody. Now, nobody died, luckily. Nobody was killed. But they kidnapped all the women and children. And then here comes this Amalekite claiming he killed Israel's king. I mean, David just continues to clean up Saul's mess, it seems. And so David said to him, you know, why were you not afraid uh, to destroy the Lord's anointed? And then David's response was rather swift. David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. <laughs> In other words, this man doesn't deserve to live. And he struck him down immediately so that he died. So this guy's thinking he's bringing this crown, and thing, but he's, he's doing it with, with ulterior motives to kind of get in good with the king somehow, maybe to work his way into the command. Who knows what? But David saw right through it, and David said this in verse 16, Look, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now, remember, uh, actually, we went out to see Justin Peters uh, Monday night out in the valley out in Stockton. And he brought up this, this incident because he said a lot of the word faith 
teachers will say, oh, you can't touch the Lord's anointed. You know, you can't criticize me. And they refer to this, they're referring to this verse. That's not what the Lord is talking about here. All right? He's not talking about false teachers who call themselves anointed. These are people who the kingly, uh, were the kings that were put in place by God. They were anointed of God for their purpose. And so it's, it's, it's important to understand that, that point. So, you know, rather than receiving his reward, this messenger is executed for raising his hand against God's anointed. And this, as you read through the text, you, you kind of anticipate David's getting more power here. He's getting more respect. I mean, he's giving commands and people are immediately obeying them. All right, he's clearly God's chosen one for the king. The New American Commentary says that destroying the Lord's anointed was tantamount to rejecting the Lord since it represented the ultimate rejection of his designated leader. So it's important to understand that, first of all, it's God who sustains us through the dark times, but it's also God who determines are going to be our human authorities, who they are. Uh, That's what the Bible says over and over and over again. And don't forget, I mean, as bad as Saul was, right, as Israel's king, I mean, he, he clearly wasn't following the Lord. He wasn't really concerned about the Lord. He was concerned about his own self and taking out vengeance against David. He was constantly hunting them down. On one occasion, he's away trying to hunt down David, and Israel's being attacked, and they had to come, and they had to pull him away from that pursuit of David to come back and help with the battle. Uh, he was a warrior, but remember, as bad as he was, who put Saul on the throne? God did. Right? All the way back in, in 1 Samuel chapter 9. Clearly. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 17. It says, When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, told Samuel, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. So it was God who put Saul as king over Israel. And so it, it's, that's an important point. Because it's God who determines who's in authority over us. God designated Saul as first, as Israel's first human king. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 10, 23 and 24, it says, Then they ran, they took him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. Remember, Saul wasn't looking like, he wasn't out on a campaign, hey, make me king, make me king. Remember, he took it reluctantly. At one point, they're trying to crown him. They're trying to anoint him king. And where's he at? He's hiding in the bags. Remember, they had to go find him. So at this point in the history of of Saul and Israel, he wasn't filled with pride at this point. He was a humble man. Uh, And Samuel said to all the people, it says in verse 24, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. That's 1 Samuel 10, 23 and 24. It's God who determines our human authorities, even as imperfect as they may be, right? Just because God chooses somebody and puts them in authority over us, it does not mean that they are going to be perfect. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, okay, Israel was a theocracy. I get it. You know, they were God's chosen people, his covenant people. So I'm sure God had the right to pick their king, But, you know, does this really apply to us today? Are you saying it applies to us? Well, in Romans chapter 13, yes, I am. We've gone through this. Uh, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, Paul affirms 
this very principle, that God chooses those in authority over us. He says, let every person be subject, verse 1, Romans 13, to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. And so it's not just an Old Testament principle. It's a New Testament principle as well. Okay, that's, that's an important point. So the third practical point here, it's God who demands that we honor those he puts in authority over us. It's, it's God who demands that we respect this. Look at, look at verse 17. He begins, David begins this, this poem, this lament, basically, over the death of Saul and Jonathan. And it says in verse 17, And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, and, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. For, behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. We don't know what that is. It's lost. Okay, probably would be interesting reading, but obviously it's not inspired scripture because we don't have it. So it was recorded in the book of Jasar, but we don't have that book. But we have a portion of what was in the book right here in Scripture. And so David begins to write this poem of kind of lamenting uh, Saul, this imperfect king, and Jonathan, his beloved friend. And by doing so, he was really honoring, he was honoring God. He understood that, you know what, it's God who put this king and authority over Israel and I think that we need to understand that we have to honor even though he's imperfect because I want to honor God Uh, what's interesting every place in the Bible that mentions Mount Gilboa this is where the battle happened that where Saul was killed their king every place else in the Bible wherever you look up Mount Gilboa it's always associated it mentions the death of Saul it's just connected so that's how important these things are and so this, this lamentation here, it says in verse 19, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places, how the mighty has fallen. He, he says this three times. How the mighty has fallen, how the mighty has fallen, how the mighty has fallen. He says it three times in this, in this text. Tell it not in Gath. What was Gath? That was the, the Philistine capital, remember, where, where uh, uh, Goliath was and all that? He said, don't, don't tell them what happened to our king because it's a shameful thing for your king to be, be killed in battle. He's saying, don't publicize it over there. Publish it not in the streets of Ascalon, another Philistine place, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. We don't want them to hear this news and use it as a rallying cry, right, to come against us some more, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. And then he says in verse 21, you mountains of Gilboa, remember, that's where this happened. That's where Saul was, was killed. Let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. So what's he doing? He's, he's basically, in a poetic way, saying, you know, the mounts of Gilboa, the mountains of Gilboa are forever stained with the death of our king. For there, is, there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. Verse 22, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. 
They were stronger than lions. Now remember, he's talking about a man, an individual who was hunting him down. <laughs> this is David lamenting this guy who was wanted his head basically on a platter all those times. But he understood the authority that went along with his position. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. You clothe, you luxurious in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. There, that's, there's that phrase again. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. So he, you really see David's heart here. Okay, This was a true friend. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. This is not talking about homosexuality. Okay, some people just go there and it's like, what? No. He's just saying, he says, it's just poetic. All right, he's saying, wow, you know, I mean, you are so close to me. And then he ends there in verse 27, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. So he understood this aspect of it's God that demands that we respect them. And by respect them, we're actually honoring God. And so David instructs them, don't teach this in Judah, um, or, or teach this in Judah, but because it's his home tribe, all right? And it's also where the measure of his authority is at this time. In chapter 2, he's recognized as the king of Judah. And eventually in chapter 5, he'll be recognized as the king over all Israel. And so the poem is a remarkable tribute to Saul's life. And that's, that goes back to what? David's character. The idea that he would lament someone as like a rascal like, like Saul was shows you that he really understood the big picture here. He wasn't just trying to be caught up in little you know, uh, skirmishes here and there with somebody, but he understood that, you know what? Yeah, Saul's trying to kill me, but he is the king. I have to respect him for that. Um, and David basically is the main speaker, you might say, at Saul's funeral. He's eulogizing Saul who, tried, who had tried to kill him all that time. And, you know, I guess when you come down to applying this, you just have to think about it. David had these imperfect authorities over him. Right? Saul. He was imperfect. But by honoring the imperfect king, he was what? He was honoring God. And that's what we're called to do. It doesn't mean our, you, know, you, you just close your eyes and all this stuff. But on the other hand, our authorities, whether they be lawmakers, whether they be law enforcement officers, whether they be the government or the president, whoever, we should have an undue respect for them and their office because God has put them in authority over us. See, and that's very important to understand today because we have a lot of hostility going on between citizens and police right now. And you've got all this stuff going on. And it's a good reminder for us to realize that, you know what? These people are there for our betterment. Now, you know, at another time we could talk about a lot of the corruption in government and all that stuff because that's there too. That's why I said they're imperfect, right? But David had the same issues in his time, just like we do today. And just like in Paul's day. They had continual corruption going on. He was thrown in jail unjustly, all that stuff. But as Andrew told us on Sunday, his, his heart was one of joy. He was willing to do that for his Lord. He wasn't in there criticizing them or whatever. 
He just took it on the cheek and took it as from the Lord and continued with his ministry. And, you know, one day, the hopeful thing is one day that we will have a king of righteousness who reigns over his kingdom. And he does so in a just, truthful, honest way. That's what we have to look forward to. So that's kind of an important point. Well, as we close, how do we apply this? Well, there's three levels of compliance when you're respecting the office of government or whatever. There's non-resistance, there's reluctance, reluctant obedience, and there's respectful obedience. All right? You, you can, you can uh, comply in a lot of different ways. Now, the rule of thumb is basically this. We obey our authorities unless doing so requires us to what? To disobey God. At that point, we have to say no. Stop. You know, someone said, what would you do if the government passed a law that said, well, you know, as a pastor, you can't preach certain things or you can't say certain things from the pulpit? Well, I mean, I wouldn't go out of my way to disobey it, but I also wouldn't use it as a grid of, you know, if they said, oh, you know what, you can't say that homosexuality is a sin. Would I still say that? Well, yeah, I would. And if they threw you in jail, they threw you in jail. Why? Because God's authority supersedes the authority of men. But for the most part, we are to respect them. And then the second thing is we need to pray. And I put in there, not, not don't pray, like pray on people. Pray. Okay, we need to obey our authorities unless doing so requires us to disobey God. And then secondly, we need to pray for those in leadership over us. I think that that's an important point, uh, a good, good place to end tonight. Next week, we'll begin with David's anointing uh, as we go into chapter 2. And so I'd encourage you to read through chapter 2, maybe 3, and get, work a little ahead on that.